Today we potentially conclude our series on God's Avengers, Part 3, The Avengers Part 3. This may be our last message unless there are some things that need to be wrapped up next week. Again, as we've been considering this topic of God's Avengers and the role of the civil ruler, we've been looking at several verses, but we have been beginning each session with reading Romans 3, Romans 13, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 4. In Romans 13, 4, we read, speaking of the civil magistrate, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And in this brief sermon series, we have looked at several things. We've looked at the role and the reason for the civil ruler, God's avenger, last week. We've discussed the truth that all people, whether peasants or potentates, are required to obey God's moral law. And we'll touch on that a bit more today. And I hope I have made clear that my position, which is consistent with many who have gone before me in church history, is that the general equity of the civil case laws is morally binding on people today, not least of all civil rulers, also known as God's avengers. I agree with the Puritan Thomas Shepard who said this, speaking of the laws laid out in the Old Testament. The judicial laws, some of them being hedges and fences to safeguard both moral and ceremonial precepts, their binding power was therefore mixed and various. For those which did safeguard any moral law, which is perpetual, whether by just punishments or otherwise, do still morally bind all nations. So the Puritan Thomas Shepard is saying that the judicial laws, the civil laws in the Old Testament, some of them spoke to ceremonial issues, some of them spoke to moral issues. And in the words of Shepard, he says, for those which did safeguard any moral law, which is perpetual, his words there, whether by just punishments or otherwise, do still morally bind all nations. And I agree with Puritan Thomas Shepard on that point. So we have talked about how if an avenger uses his own standard of right and wrong, uses his own standard to punish evil, or his own standard of what should be punished, rather than using God's law, then he is in fact bearing the sword in vain. He is in fact bearing the sword in vain. For example, if the civil ruler punishes theft with execution, with death, then he is bearing the sword for his own purpose, not to punish according to God's standard. Not to punish according to God's standard. Now I want to give Noah Webster's Noah Webster's definition of justice. And Noah Webster says this, Justice is the virtue which consists in giving to everyone what is his due, practical conformity to the laws and to principles of rectitude in the dealings of men with each other, honesty, integrity, and commerce, or mutual intercourse. And we will consider today, as we have considered in the past, this idea of justice and how God is very much concerned with it and concerned that civil rulers or his avengers enforce justice according to his standard. So today what I want to do is I want to make first three main points 
on why we should focus on these issues. We have touched on this briefly, but as we begin to wrap up this series, I want to make three main points as to why we should be focused on civil government and on magistrates and on how they are to rule. And then we will conclude with answering some objections um, that have been raised throughout the series that I want to touch on. So the three main points for the first half of this message are the reasons why we should focus on the role of civil government. Let me list them first. Number one, God cares greatly about justice being applied in society. That's the first reason we should care about the idea of civil government and civil rulers. Number two, as Christians, we are in fact in the world. We live in the world. We have commerce in the world. We have interactions in the world. So we should care about what goes on in the world. And number three, the reason we should care about this, why we should focus on this instead of just focusing on spiritual matters, quote unquote, and not being concerned with the realm of politics and justice and righteousness in society. The third reason we should focus on this is because Christians do, in fact, become avengers. Christians do, in fact, become civil rulers. Not all of us, but many Christians have. And if God continues to bless us, many more Christians will. So let's talk about those three reasons. Number one, why we should focus on matters of civil government is that God cares greatly about justice being applied in society. And I do believe we have touched on this somewhat at length in the past, but I wanted to bring it up again. The second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments, is all about our interactions with fellow man in society. And therefore, we see that God is very much concerned with justice being done. Let me read several verses from the Bible about justice. And there are many more, but just to give you an idea. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Proverbs 21:15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, Plead the widow's cause. Amos 5.24 But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah 61.8 For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And the list goes on and on and on. Justice is a theme that is very prominent in Scripture, and it is something that God cares very much about. And therefore, as Christians, we cannot simply say, well, I'm not to be focused or concerned about what goes on in this world. I'm not to be concerned about justice. I'm only to be focused on my personal relationship to the Lord and on getting to heaven, whatever happens here on earth. Justice is a theme that is very prominent in Scripture, and we could go on on that. But let me move on to the second point. Now, I'm covering these rather quickly because we'll spend a little more time on certain aspects today. The second reason we should focus on these matters, the first being that God cares very much about justice being applied in society. The second reason is, as I've touched on, we are, in fact, in the world. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 17. Turn to John chapter 17, verse 14. 
John 17 is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 14, we pick up with him saying this in John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, what is clear, what is uh, very interesting here to note, one of the first things we see is that Jesus did not ask for his followers to be taken out of the world. So while it is true that we are not of the world, and there's much that could be said about that, we are very much in the world, and Jesus wants us in the world. Otherwise, he would have prayed that we be taken out of the world. Instead of being taken out of the world, if you look at verse 18, we are, in fact, sent into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we are not uh, to be taken out of this world. We are in the world. And so we should not have in our mind this sacred secular division that part of life is to be lived for Christ and according to God's word, and part of it isn't. And this idea that, well, since we're not of the world, we shouldn't get involved in politics or righteousness or justice in society, the law being applied in our land to our neighbor, equity being care, justice being followed. The idea that we should not care about those things because we're not of the world is, I believe, a misapplication and misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying. He specifically says that we are to stay in the world and we are to be sent out as he was into the world to change the world with the word of God being our standard. And in fact, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is to be what sets us apart from others and is to be that seasoning agent in us, that salt that makes us different, that we can make an impact in the world and change the world as Jesus Christ changed the world. It's clear, from obviously, from a Christian perspective, but even non-Christians understand that no person, and we know Jesus is more than just a man, but he, he is a man, and no man has changed the world more than Jesus Christ. And Jesus did say his followers would do even more than he has done. And I believe that doesn't apply to his miraculous power and miracles, but rather the influence and the, the great change that he brought to the world that is still being carried out by his followers. So we are to care for these things because, number one, God cares about justice. Number two, we are in this world. We live in this world, and we are to seek the welfare of this world in which we live in. All of life is to be brought under the lordship of Christ. There is not a sacred, secular divide. And number three, the third reason why we should care about this issue of civil rulers and the avengers of God and civil government is because Christians do, in fact, become civil rulers. As much as it may surprise some people, God has allowed Christians to become civil rulers in the past and even today. And if Christians are to have any impact as civil rulers for justice and righteousness, they must know what God's law says about their role as an avenger. And as, unfortunately, the church has largely given up, at least the professing evangelical church has largely given up their role, primarily the family's role and then the church's role, to educate the coming generations about these matters, about 
a biblical worldview touching all of life about the role of civil government from a biblical perspective. Unfortunately, many Christians that do become civil rulers don't even know how to act. They don't know how to apply God's law in the realm of politics because they have been taught that God's word doesn't apply in that realm. And that is a shame. So let me give you some examples of Christians. And of course, there are so many. and I'm only going to give you a couple um, of, of Christians who have became civil rulers. And of course, these will be some of the more prominent examples. And uh, let me say, first of all, that, of course, I wouldn't dis- I wouldn't agree with everything done by these men. Just as there are no two Christians, I think, on earth that have ever agreed on every single point of applying God's law. Forget about civil government. Forget about that. Just in general, we have differences regarding many things, baptism, church polity, uh, different views on uh, texts and things like that. That doesn't mean there's not one truth, but it does mean that just because Christians have different views um, doesn't mean general principles don't still apply. So, I want to give some of these examples, and you can look and say, oh, well, this person did this and that, and that wasn't right. And Certainly, Christians are not perfect, only Jesus is, but we are still to seek to apply God's word perfectly in all of life, even though we fall short. So let me give you some examples of Christians who have become civil rulers. This is not just a uh, pie-in-the-sky idea that, well, if God ever allowed Christians to come into power, that then we'd have to apply these things. Throughout history, it has happened. And it still happens. So let me begin by talking to you about Alfred the Great. Alfred the Great. King Alfred. Now, Alfred uh, was in England uh, years before the Reformation. And the Vikings were attacking England. They were coming to England and attacking and plundering the English villages. And Alfred led the English forces against the Vikings. And there's much that could be said there. Uh, He led the English forces against the Vikings, ultimately to victory, and uh, did many things to transform England in in ways that are still still felt, even in us in America. The tradition and legacy of Alfred have, have trickled down to America in many ways. So let me talk a little bit about Alfred here. So after Alfred uh, came to power, he remembered how God had blessed his land in the past. So even Alfred looked back. And saw that in the past, God had blessed his land. And Alfred wrote wrote this. He said, very often it has come to my mind how there were happy times then throughout England. And how the kings obeyed God and his messengers. And how they not only maintained their peace, morality, and authority at home. But they they succeeded both in warfare and in wisdom. So the message of Christianity had already reached England, what we call England, long before Alfred. And Alfred comes along and he he remembers how God had blessed his land and blessed his leaders with obedience to God. And Alfred said this, he said, local government ought to be synonymous with local Christian virtue. Otherwise, it becomes local tyranny, local corruption and local iniquity. So here's a man, 500, 600, 700 years roughly before the Reformation. So we're talking around a thousand years ago. And he said that local government ought to be synonymous with local Christian virtue. Another thing Alfred did was long before Tyndale came along, he translated portions of the Bible into the language of the people. 
he translated portions of the Bible and he taught his people how to read because there was a literacy and just spiritual darkness in the land. Again, this came to be repeated again prior to the Reformation, but many people don't know that this was a cycle that was happening. There's nothing new under the sun. And Alfred came along and said, we need to give the people the word of God so that they can understand what it means to live righteously. I want to read a quote here from a historian about Alfred, and he says this, Alfred restructured the law codes of Wessex with the Holy Scriptures as his foundation. He set forth a just legal system based upon the teachings of Jesus and the laws of Moses. In his preface to his law code, Alfred quoted the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He then wrote, if a man understood how to apply this one law alone, he would need no law book. He began his law code with his own translation of the Ten Commandments from Latin to English. Included in this law book and his preface included our other passages from the law of Moses, Exodus 21, 22, and 23. He's taking the law of God and applying it to a society, describing the clear application of the law to their society. These were followed by excerpts from Christ's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and a brief account of apostolic history and the growth of Christian law among the Christian nations. This is Alfred the Great, many, many, many years ago, a man seeking to rule according to God's law. In his book, The White Horse King, Benjamin Merkel notes this, quote, Speaking of Alfred's writings, by arguing throughout his preface that justice must be an eternal principle handed down through both scripture and the legal codes of the land, Alfred established a framework for what would later be known as common law, the foundation for the legal system of England for the following millennia, as well as for the legal system of the former colonies of the British Empire, including the United States and others. Now, of course, we could critique Alfred on many points, uh, perhaps the fact that he part of one of his conditions for a treaty with the Vikings was that the Viking king professes Christianity. We may critique him on many things. And as I said, there is no Christian ruler who has ever been perfect other than Jesus. But yet we see clearly here a man who was committed to applying God's law to society. Christians do, in fact, become civil rulers many, many more who are not as well known as Alfred. I would list one more for you. William Bradford, who became governor of the colony of Plymouth in Massachusetts, modern-day Massachusetts. He came over aboard the Mayflower with others. Initially, John Carver was the first governor, and then William Bradford was elected by the people to be governor, to be magistrate. And, of course, Bradford steeped in the scriptures, who read copiously from his Geneva Bible and quoted from it very much in his account of the Plymouth Plantation was a man who sought to apply God's word to society. Of course, the list could go on. We could talk about Abraham Kuyper and others. And of course, all these men would have differences among themselves. And there would be things that I perhaps would disagree with. But the point is this. Christians do, in fact, become civil rulers. They do, in fact, become avengers. And therefore, this is important for us to think about as a church, as a whole, as the evangelical church has largely abandoned these teachings, we have lost sight of these three things. God cares greatly about justice. 
Christians do in fact become civil rulers, and we are in the world, and we are to care what occurs in the world. So let me now, for the rest of our time, answer some uh, objections, as this may be the last uh, message in this series. Let me answer some objections that have been raised, and perhaps I haven't been able to get to them. Um, So this will be a bit of a uh, going through some different objections here, not necessarily in order of importance or when they were raised, but given the fact that we've discussed so much, beginning with our Election Day sermon uh, from Exodus on what God requires of civil rulers, given that we've considered uh, what the Avenger is tasked with doing, their role and reason, and now we've considered today why we should care about these things, let me conclude with some um, further explanation and objections. Now, one objection to this whole series would be that there's no reason to conclude that the quote-unquote spiritual elders or the civil rulers of Israel should equate with civil rulers today. Many would say, well, those the, the equivalent today of civil rulers in the Old Testament are pastors and elders in the church. To answer that objection, I would say it's very clear that in Exodus 18.21, and certainly in Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 16, the language there is referring to civil leaders. The focus is clearly on civil matters, hearing cases, judging the people with righteous, with righteous judgment, right, applying God's law in society. Furthermore, I believe if you look to the Old Testament, there is another group of people that I would say would be more focused on what you might want to call spiritual components, if you will, what would be more equivalent to the role of pastors today. And I would say that would be more the category of the priests. I think, for example, of Ezra as the example of this. We read in Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The priests were in a different category than the civil rulers, and they had different qualifications and they had different qualifications. The, the, civil, the, the priests had different qualifications than the civil rulers. Uh, I think there's a clear distinction between the civil rulers and the spiritual leaders, as evidenced by King Saul's, by King Saul's, who was a civil ruler, by King Saul's presumptuous decision to cross a line and blur that distinction and offer sacrifices, which was not his role to do as a civil ruler. Now, that the qualifications between civil rulers and pastors are similar in some ways is not surprising. Both civil rulers and pastors are required to lead people according to God's law. And so it makes sense to me that both are required to not uh, be given to to bribes or love of money, to to live in the fear of God. But there is a difference between um, pastors and civil rulers. One of the most conspicuous being that a pastor is required to teach sound doctrine and refute error. However, teaching is not a qualification for the civil ruler. Furthermore, I don't believe that we would take the geopolitical entity of Israel and then replace that with the church and say, well, whatever occurred uh, in the civil realm with Israel now just simply applies to the church. I believe that the plan of God for the nations has continued to unfold And the moral standards that he laid out in the Old Testament, of which Moses said, these are to be a light to the nations around you, that those moral standards, being a reflection of his character, are to be adopted by all nations as the gospel spreads and prevails. 
So while there may be similarities between the requirements for civil rulers in the Old Testament and the requirements for pastors in the New Testament, I do not believe that they are equivalent. There is a difference in qualifications, and they are different roles. Much more could be said on that, but I will hasten to move on to the next objection, which is that people did not choose the leaders in Exodus. This is, a, I think, a rather easy objection to refute. In the initial Election Day sermon, we talked about how the people chose their leaders in Exodus 18.21. And some might say, well, if you read Exodus 18.21, it doesn't say anything about the people choosing the leaders, but rather Moses doing so. However, um, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, which we read this morning, it makes it very clear that the people chose the leaders and Moses appointed them. Moses is In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is looking back to Exodus 18, and he's saying this, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. The people choose them, Moses appoints them. Objection number three is this. The objection of civil government is not just for believers. And we did speak about this last week, but it is such an important topic that I want to revisit it briefly today. So many people might say, well, the way you're presenting the role of the civil government is that this is something only for Christians. And don't you see government as a common grace for all nations? Right. And I'm going to repeat some of what I said last week, but I have some other content to add. Now, I don't really agree with the way the question is framed. I don't think civil government, or anything for that matter, is a matter of what is for believers and what is for non-believers. I think the perspective and the way we think about this should be shifted to this. What does God require of all people? As we talked about at length last week, all people and institutions are required to follow God's law. In effect, then, everyone is required to be a believer, Everyone is required to believe and obey Jesus Christ. Everyone is required to have no other gods before the one true God. Everyone is required to refrain from idolatry. Everyone on this earth is required to refrain from using God's name in vain. In summary, everyone is required to obey King Jesus. Psalm 2, 10-12, of course, calls on all the kings of the earth to kiss the Son, to pay him homage. It matters not whether someone is a believer or a non-believer, a Christian or a pagan. It matters not whether someone covenanted with God or whether they have lived in open rebellion their whole lives. It matters not. If this were the case, the command to repent would be vain. For why would I be required to repent of sin if I am not required to not sin, i.e. follow God's law? I am reminded of Mel Gibson's character in the film Braveheart. William Wallace is charged with high treason. And in the scene, he is talking with one of the magistrates for the King of England. And the dialogue goes like this. Royal Magistrate. William Wallace, you stand in taint of high treason. Wallace. Treason? Against whom? Magistrate. Against thy king, thou vile fool. Hast thou anything to say? Wallace, never in my whole life did I swear allegiance to your king. Magistrate, it matter not. He is thy king. Wallace, while many who serve him have taken and broken his oath many times, I cannot commit treason if I have never been 
his subject. I cannot commit treason if I have never been his subject. Now, while I might agree with Wallace in regard to the claims of the King of England over a free Scotsman, the same logic will never apply to King Jesus. He is, in fact, everyone's king. And it matters not whether someone took an oath to be his subject or not. He is your king. He is everyone's king. And treason does not require you to swear an oath to Jesus and then break it. You are required to obey him. Now, I can agree that God restrains and delays the punishment of sin and does allow non-Christians to enjoy many blessings prior to either their repentance or their final judgment in hell. But it does not follow that people are not required to immediately repent of sin, which is transgression of the law. In fact, if people do not repent of sin, that delay only adds to their punishment. As a Reformed and what I hope is a biblical Christian, I believe that all unregenerate people, all those who are not born again, who are not Christian, are unable to please God in all that they do. We talked about this in the first sermon of the Avengers from Romans 8-7. Everything the unregenerate do is tainted by sin, which is a transgression of God's law. Therefore, if we talk about the idea of marriage being for non-Christians and Christians alike, if we want to make that claim... Non-Christians in a marriage union cannot honor God in their marriage. They cannot. It is impossible. Their marriage, as all of their life is, is tainted by treason, by sin, because they refuse to submit to God's law and honor King Jesus. If we are consistent in our biblical theology, we would acknowledge that God would be just and righteous in immediately killing such treasonous offenders and casting them into hell straightway, for not conducting their marriage according to Christian principles. It is not then that non-Christians shouldn't get married, don't misunderstand me. It is rather that non-Christians are required to repent of non-Christian marriage immediately, because otherwise everything they do is sin and will only add to the wrath that they are storing up for themselves, Romans 2.5. Again, I'm not advocating divorce I'm simply saying that non-Christians must repent straightway of conducting their marriages in a sinful way. If a man or a woman does that, they repent, they can still honor God for their part, even if they're married to a non-Christian. They can be faithful to the law of God as a spouse. But if they do not conduct their marriage according to God's law, they are in sin and deserving of hell immediately. Let me give another example that just shows this idea of something being for Christians or for non-Christians misses the point. Let me ask you about this. What about food? Is food only for Christians or is food also for non-Christians? Well, God requires that all people receive their food with thankfulness to him, to him who has provided it. In fact, the Apostle Paul lists a lack of thankfulness as one of his main indictments on sinful humanity in Romans 1.21. They were not grateful, nor did they give thanks to God. The non-Christian cannot please God with how he eats food. He cannot. He is not grateful from his heart to his creator for the food that has been provided for him. In fact, the non-Christian is at enmity with his creator, Romans 8, 7. God would therefore be just in immediately killing such a treasonous offender, someone who eats food 
from a non-Christian worldview as a non-Christian. God would be just in casting them into hell for not receiving that food with a thankful heart according to God's law. That God does not immediately cast such a person to hell does not mean that God endorses a non-Christian eating food in a sinful manner. It is not that non-Christians shouldn't eat food. It's that they should repent immediately of eating food in an ungodly manner, which every single unregenerate person does. Every time they take a bite of food, enjoy a meal, they are sinning against God because they are not receiving that food with a thankful heart. Again, if we are consistent with our doctrines of total depravity and the sin of man, we must acknowledge this. If a, if a non-Christian does not repent of receiving his food without thankfulness, he's, everything he does is sin, and he's storing up wrath that will, will be revealed on the final day. You see, everything in life, food, marriage, family, civil government, is to be done for God's glory according to God's word. Failure to do so is sin and evil. Can God use evil for good? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But it does not follow, therefore, that people are not required to immediately repent of all sin. Of all sin. And I think the position that I've been presenting is consistent with Reformed biblical thought as it relates to the condition of man, the claims of the Creator, the command to repent, the doctrine of hell. I think any other position which would some way intimate that a non-Christian is not required to immediately submit to all of God's law compromises on these core doctrines. Again, I don't view marriage as something for Christians or for non-Christians. I view marriage as a God-ordained institution that is meant to honor Jesus, and God requires all people, including husbands and wives, to conduct their lives according to his law. Therefore, I could preach a quote-unquote theonomic message directed at husbands and rightly say that God requires you to repent and conduct your marriage according to the Bible. It matters not if you are a pagan. It matters not whether you have sworn allegiance to Jesus or not. You are required to obey God, and part of that obedience includes your marriage, if you're married. Failure to do so will bring judgment on you. You will continue to store up wrath for yourself by sinning in your marriage, by not following God's law in the way you conduct your marriage. Now, all that to say, civil government is simply for people. It matters not whether someone claims to be a Christian or not. It is not that civil government is both for Christians and non-Christians. It is for the creatures that God has created, all of whom are required to obey God's law. A non-Christian who is a civil ruler, just like a non-Christian who is a husband, is required to repent immediately and rule according to God's law. There's not some some vague concept here that, well, since it's a common grace that God, quote-unquote, gives to all people, therefore people are not in sin, storing up wrath for themselves, should be sentenced to hell immediately if God were not delaying his judgment because they are in violation of his law. That God can use evil civil rulers to bring about some good in society, I grant that can happen, but that God uses evil for good does not mean that all civil rulers are not required to repent immediately and honor their king, King Jesus. Every moment that goes by that a civil ruler does not govern according to God's law is adding wrath to the judgment stored up for that civil ruler. And so another reason we should care about this is because we don't want civil rulers to continue to store up wrath for themselves. Unless they repent, they continue to store up wrath for themselves. Every moment that goes by that a non-Christian husband 
does not husband according to God's law is adding wrath to the judgment stored up for that man unless he repents. The same could be said of a wife. The same could be said of a child, an unregenerate child. Every moment and every day that goes by that a child lives in sin, unchanged by the gospel, that continues to live in rebellion to his parents in his heart, if not in his outward actions, that child is adding up sin, is adding up wrath, I should say, that will be revealed on the last day. It matters not that, that God has given family as a blessing to society. You are storing up wrath for yourself if you do not live according to God's law. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. Again, I do not preach works righteousness. Your only hope is to flee to Christ for forgiveness for your violation of God's law, and then his spirit will enable you to grow in obedience to that law. But your acceptance with God will always be because of what Christ has done in fulfilling the law perfectly. That's the third objection, and I think it's very uh, important that we understand that. Final objection is that other standards for civil rulers are better than what I have presented, which in effect is essentially that the civil ruler must follow God's word, must be a Christian, must be a man who fears God and loves the truth. And that's what God requires. And again, I think as God requires all people to fear God, I believe it's not a stretch to say that he requires civil rulers to do so. But some would say the guidelines in Exodus and Deuteronomy don't apply, and they'd rather say something along the lines of this, that as long as someone's life and convictions align with God's biblical purpose for government, then they are qualified to be civil rulers. So they would say as long as someone can, you know, they can align with God's biblical purpose for government, then they can rule. I would argue that only a believer's life and convictions can truly align with God's biblical purpose for government. To say otherwise would be to say that an unregenerate person who hates God, again, we must be consistent, every unregenerate person hates God, is at enmity with God. And we would be saying that an unregenerate person can have a life and a set of convictions that align with God's biblical purpose for government. I do not believe that is possible. Now, there can be some things outwardly that may appear to be generally in that direction, but at his core, he cannot acknowledge God as a creator from his heart and rule according to his law. Many of the things that some people would say are basic rights that a civil ruler at least must be able to enforce are simply components of the law of God. The right not to be killed, the sixth commandment. The right not to be kidnapped, the eighth commandment. The right not to have my property stolen, again, the eighth commandment. These are all applications of God's law. That some societies and some people can get aspects of these laws right does not mean, again, that God doesn't require them to follow his law completely. As an illustration, again, going back to the previous point, just because a pagan husband can provide for his family does not mean God doesn't demand that he repent of sin, even, perhaps especially, of the sin of providing for his family in a way that does not honor God. Again, God requires the civil ruler to fear him and rule according to his standards. Another trait that some might say, well, a civil ruler doesn't have to be a Christian, but as long as they have a character free from the kind of corruption that would skew the image of God within them, then they are able to to be a civil ruler. Now, I would argue again that only a believer can have a character free from the kind of corruption that would skew the image of God within them. Every unregenerate person, every non-Christian, is depraved, and by definition, the image of God has not been restored in them as it happens at conversion. And God requires all people 
to have that image restored via repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Only a regenerate person can have their character free from the kind of corruption that would skew the image of God in them. Every unregenerate man hates God and therefore hates God's law. And though he may get certain things closer than others, he is still in violation of God's word at enmity with God and does not understand justice. This is a very important point. Evil men do not understand justice. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, evil men do not understand justice. Therefore, an unregenerate man is evil. If we are consistent with our theology, those who are not Christians are at enmity with God. Their heart, they're still in the gall of bitterness. They are evil. They need to be born again. And as evil men, they cannot understand justice. They cannot rule according to God's standard. And so I believe the, the standard laid out in Scripture is the best one. It is God's standard that the civil ruler fear God and love the truth, that he rules according to God's word. Only a regenerate person can do that. Not perfectly, but only he can even begin to understand justice from God's law. In conclusion, the civil ruler is required to serve God, mete out justice according to God's standard of good and evil. And the civil laws, which are clearly reflections of moral law, are binding today. And they are good, and they are just, and they are righteous. And if we love our neighbors, we will care that they are followed out so that justice is done. All of life is to be lived according to God's revealed word. There are not two standards, one for the Christian and one for the non-Christian. When it comes to obedience to God's law in the world, there is one standard. You shall have one law for the native and for the sojourner. And it is the same in this world. There shall be one law for the Christian and for the non-Christian. God's law. It matters not whether you have claimed allegiance to this King Jesus. He is your King. He demands your complete obedience. And you will be wise, as the kings of the earth are instructed to in Psalm 2, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the warnings that come through again and again in Scripture as we consider this concept of sin and law and what you demand of people. And we are, we are reminded of our utter inability and our immense sin against you. When we see your law, we are rightfully and justly condemned to an eternity in hell because we have not followed your law, which may be summed up in loving you and loving our neighbor. And all the commandments and all the applications of your commandments are applications of those two things, love for God and love for neighbor. And we have failed. And every infraction deserves an eternity in hell because it is an infraction against you, God, who are so good and just and loving and kind and righteous. Lord, we pray for repentance in our land, for revival along the lines of biblical transformation. We pray for rulers we pray for their conversion, that they would be able to understand justice, as we know that evil men cannot understand justice. So we pray that your spirit would do a mighty work in our land, convert many people, all types of people as required, as we are called to pray for all people. We, we pray, Lord, that you would convert rulers, that you would convert boys and girls, and that we would see a great transformation in our land. We pray for biblical literacy to increase 
especially in the church. And we thank you for the blessings that you have given throughout history as your word has gone forth, aided by your spirit as the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.